and other portions of the worship service. One of the things we're simply observing today is that Christianity is declining in the West. And many have come to describe the world and culture we live in today as a post-Christian world. And by that, they simply mean uh, that increasingly, we can't expect the world to either understand or share our values, beliefs, worldview, culture, and so on. And while that's new for many of us, the last several decades that uh, many of us grew up in was a world in which you could basically expect that people knew what the Bible was and what the basic storyline was, even if they didn't believe it. You might expect many people even to claim to be Christians without being Christians because it actually afforded them social capital. You might expect us to share values. Well, none of that is really true anymore. And for many of us, that's disorienting. But in many ways, this is actually more like the world of the Bible. This is more like the pre-Christian world of the early church. And one of the natural responses for many of us who've experienced more of a Christianized society going into a post-Christian world is fear, anxiety, as we see hostility, as we see ourselves marginalized, is to wonder, what's going to happen to the church? What's going to happen to me? But as our world becomes more like the world of the early church, another response we can have is to look to the Bible and ask, how did the early church respond to similar situations and learn how we can respond still today? And so as we continue our series, The Acts of the Risen Christ, where we've been looking at how Jesus has worked through his people then and still works through his people today, we get a glimpse of what Jesus has done and is still doing in and through his people today. Several weeks ago, we saw the persecution swept through the church of Jerusalem under the leadership of Saul after Stephen was first killed. And then we got to see two glimpses of how the Lord used that persecution actually to advance the gospel to new peoples in Samaria and to the Ethiopians. But today, as we look at Acts chapter 9, Luke begins to draw our attention back to Saul, back to the persecution, back to the hostility facing Jesus and his disciples, and tells one of the most dramatic and surprising conversions we find in all the Bible and maybe in all human history. And in the midst of such dramatic conversion, it would be easy for us to focus on the drama and miss what Jesus is doing. To miss actually the basic point of Acts, which is not about the surprising and marvelous things that might happen in a person's life, but is what Jesus has done, is doing, and will always do until he comes back. And that's the point of Acts. More specifically, we might miss how Jesus is fulfilling the promise that we've heard again and again today. That I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I've said this a few weeks ago. I can't remember in what context. But let me just remind you, the gates of hell is a defensive metaphor, which means when he says, The uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He's actually meaning the church is advancing on mission and hell won't be able to overcome the church as it snatches people back from sin and darkness and leads them to the Lord. And so as we look now at Acts chapter 9, 1 through 31, we're going to see through Saul's story that this text is tailored to teach us that the church can have peace in the midst of opposition because Jesus will build his church. The church can have peace in the midst of opposition because Jesus will build his church. 
And the conversion of Saul powerfully and dramatically illustrates three ways Jesus has and is building his church still today, as well as the result of Jesus building his church. You see, Jesus passionately identifies with his people, a Jesus, a sovereignly plan to expand his kingdom. And finally, Jesus graciously turns enemies into evangelists. And all this results in a church that has peace and is built up. But before we dive into God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as Ron prayed earlier, we recognize as we come before you, there are many distractions on our hearts and minds. Some of us are able to put them down at the door as we come in, but many of us, as Pastor Rory has shared, struggle throughout the whole service to surrender our distractions at the feet of the cross. And so, Lord, we ask you this morning that your spirit would help us to surrender our distractions, help us to surrender our burdens, so that we could hear from you. We ask that your spirit would illuminate the scriptures so that we would not just understand what they mean, but that we would be able to receive them in faith so that we would come to love and trust Jesus all the more. Lord, please help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately. Please use the preaching of your word to accomplish the purpose for which you sent, which is to produce in us love and worship of Jesus. And so it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've not turned there yet, I invite you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 9. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, a great way to follow along is to grab a weekly word and prayer off the welcome table in the foyer. If you don't have one, uh, there is no shame in getting up right now to go get one. In fact, we want you to do that so you can follow along. Uh, but if you do have a Bible and aren't familiar with it, uh, Acts is about eight to nine-tenths of the way through your Bible. It comes after the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but before the letters to the Romans and Corinthians. And then you'll be looking for a big, bold nine. That's a chapter. And once you've found that, I know we've already prayed for this, but you know the particular distractions, the particular burdens you brought in this morning? Would you please just quietly surrender those to the Lord and ask that his spirit would work in you and move you to hear what he's prepared for you this morning? If you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. ready. Look with me at Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led them by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days... He was without sight and neither ate nor drank. 
Here we see the first way Jesus builds his church is that Jesus passionately identifies with his people. Jesus passionately identifies with his people. In the midst of our celebration over the last two weeks of how God was working through Philip to bring the gospel first to the despised Samaritans and then to the one who was far off among the Ethiopian, we might have assumed after the initial persecution in Jerusalem it had died off, or we may have forgotten that the reason the church was scattered was due to persecution. But here we're quickly reminded that the very reason the church had been scattered is still something uh, oppressing the church today. Saul, the one who had led and overseen this murder of Stephen, who had then led the initial persecution of the church in Jerusalem, is here still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Saul still hates the church. Yet now it begins to intensify. Saul is not content just to see Christianity wiped out in Jerusalem. He now even wants to leave Israel and see that Christianity would be stamped out in Damascus, which is the first city outside the land of Israel noted for having Christians. This is how much Saul hated Jesus. This is how much Saul hated the early church, wanting to see Christianity stamped out and destroyed everywhere. But then Luke recounts an amazing encounter on the way to Damascus. A light from heaven shines all around Saul, and he hears a voice asking, why are you persecuting me? Now the South Asia Bible commentary points out the significance of this question for Saul, explaining Saul would have no doubt that God himself was speaking his name. For the rabbis had taught that a voice from heaven could bring a rebuke or an instruction from God. But the question, why do you persecute me, must have shocked him. Since Saul sincerely believed that what he was doing was honoring God. And so the natural question he asked then is, who are you, Lord? So confused by why God would tell him, ask him, why are you persecuting me? And the voice responded, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now consider the stunning implication of that statement. Jesus had been crucified for several years at this point. Saul, at least in his own mind, is not persecuting Jesus. He's persecuting disciples of Jesus. And yet here we see that Jesus so passionately is identifying with his people that he counts what is done to his people as if it is done to him. This is what Jesus has said early in his ministry regarding our care for the hungry and thirsty, the stranger and naked, the sick and imprisoned. Jesus said, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of them, so you did it to me. Jesus passionately identifies with his people such that whatever is done to them, he counts as it being done to him. If you have trusted in Jesus This is one of the countless blessings that we have received from the gospel, from Christ's life, death, and resurrection. We are united to Christ. You are united with him in his death, such that you are also united with him in his resurrection. You have died to sin and been raised to righteousness. He is the head, and you are now a part of his body. However God the Father sees Jesus is how God the Father sees you. The Father declared Jesus not guilty when he raised him from the dead. So now, 
God declares you not guilty. As the Father is pleased in Jesus, as his beloved Son, the Father is now pleased in you, as his beloved sons and daughters. As the Father counts Jesus his heir, he now counts you co-heirs with Christ, recipients of his promises, privileges, and inheritance. And on and on we could go. That which is true of Christ is true of you. But the significance of Jesus identifying with his people in this passage is not just how God sees us, but how Jesus identifies with us against our enemies. When you're wronged, when you're taken advantage of, when you're slandered, when you're unjustly treated, regardless of whether this is because you're a Christian or simply because Jesus identifies with you. What is done to you is counted as done to him. So just as I might count an attack on my wife and daughters as a personal attack on me, Jesus is counting attacks on his people as personal attacks on him. This is how much he loves us. This is how much he identifies with us. This is how much he cares for us. What does this mean for us? What difference does this make? It means we can have great comfort, great hope in times of hardship and pain. Jesus doesn't stand back disinterested from what's going on in the lives of his people. He is with us and for us in the midst of our suffering. He is with us and for us in the midst of whatever opposition we face. He's experiencing it with us. And not just that, but we can also be confident that when Christ returns, every sin done against us will be judged. And it will either be paid for by his blood or will sentence that person to an eternity in hell. But justice will be served. No unrighteous thing ever done to you will go unpunished. It's either been punished on the cross or will be punished for all eternity in hell. Jesus identifies with us, which means most importantly no matter what we face we can be confident that Jesus will not be overcome. That we will not be overcome. That his church will not be overcome. Because the one who is able to conquer death itself is with us, for us, in the midst of that opposition. Jesus passionately identifies with his people. Although I don't think this is the main point of the passage, I think we also see here, uh, through Saul's response, something of the nature of true conversion. Jesus goes on to tell Saul to enter in the city where he'll learn what he needs to do in light of the reality that he has been persecuting the Lord and Savior. And so although his companions heard a sound and saw a light, but did not see Jesus or hear the specific message that Saul had been given, when Saul opened his eyes, he was blind. And so they lead him into the city where he waits. And what the text tells us is that when he gets there, He neither eats nor drinks for three days. Now, it might not be apparent from verse 9, but as we go through the rest of the passage, it'll be apparent that what Saul's doing here is probably fasting, praying, considering the reality that Jesus is Lord. What does that mean for him? And the reason we know this is later, Jesus will tell Ananias that Paul is praying. And so this taking three days to not eat or drink is an indication he's praying, contemplating what he needs to do before the Lord. He's, encount- he's contemplating his encounter with Jesus, fasting, content- contempla- ah, meditating on repentance, 
and as we will see throughout the rest of Acts, is totally transformed. And so here I want to pause for a moment and just consider what Saul's story tells us about what it means to be a Christian. Sometimes we read conversion stories like this, or we hear the conversion stories of drug addicts or unlikely people becoming Christians, and we think that's what it means to have a story. That's what it means for someone to really be converted. Perhaps we think, unless I have a dramatic experience where my life turned around completely, I don't really have a testimony. Or maybe even worse, if we can't point to something that dramatic, we begin to wonder, am I really a Christian? I don't have a story like that. And this way of thinking about conversion as a dramatic experience negatively impacts most people who've grown up in the church, who outwardly at least don't have a lot of behavior to say, I've turned away from, and they're turning towards Christ. Yet their conversion is no less miraculous. What the scriptures tell us is that Saul's outward hostility reflects the inward hostility of every single person apart from Christ. We are all born rebels against God, hostile to his people. In fact, according to Saul himself, once he became a Christian, he realized all the good things he had done was actually sin because he had done it to try to earn God's approval rather than doing it because God had loved him. This is one of the things we realize when we become Christians is the good we've done apart from Christ is not good. It's filthy rags. It's sin. So a good person good, not only has to then repent of their sinful actions, but they also must repent of their good deeds. They must repent of their righteousness done for sinful reasons. Because apart from Christ, every good thing we've ever done is an attempt to earn God's approval, earn man's favor, earn a reputation for ourselves, do something good for us. It's not about God. So the miracle of someone who's grown up in the church becoming a Christian is just as much a miracle as someone far from God who's clearly far from God coming to Christ because God has to help them see not just their sin, but how even their good deeds trying to earn God's favor is not pleasing in his sight. So true conversion is not about how dramatic the conversion is. It's also not about our sincerity. Saul was incredibly sincere in his persecution of Christians. In fact, he thought he was pleasing God as he's going around imprisoning Christians and killing them. He sincerely was wrong about the way to salvation. He was sincerely wrong about Jesus. In fact, Saul's sincerity reveals how spiritually blind he really is. Despite the fact that Saul had likely as a Pharisee memorized large portions of scripture that should have prepared him to know he needed a savior, Despite the fact that he had led the persecution and interrogation of many Christians, likely hearing the gospel message again and again, despite all these things, even seeing Christians willing to die for Jesus, he doesn't understand or believe the gospel. He's blind. And so instead, he sincerely believed he was honoring God by persecuting the church. And one of the dangers of making conversion about how sincere we are that we can never be sure that we're sincere enough. And so insecurity follows, and a culture of rededication develops. And so you often hear then people praying the sinner's prayer over and over again, hoping this time it'll take. Or instead of simply saying, you know what, I need to repent of this sin and pursue Jesus again, you hear people saying things like, I need to rededicate my life to the Lord, or I need to kind of 
make sure this time my conversion actually takes. When in reality, all of the Christian life is a life of repentance and faith. It's not about our sincerity. It's not about a dramatic experience. So what is it about? It's about an encounter with Jesus and responding to him in repentance and faith. In Saul's case, his encounter with Jesus was through a vision, an audible voice on the Damascus Road. But in the case of most people today, our first encounter with Jesus happens as someone explains the gospel to us and the Holy Spirit gives us the eyes and ears to see and understand what he's saying to us. And we begin to appreciate the beauty of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. This also happens as people read the gospels for the first time. And they begin to realize that this description of what Jesus has done is actually for me. And then just as Saul responds to his encounter with Christ, with repentance turning away from his sin, recognizing he's a sinner and rebel against God, so too does anyone who is saved respond to Jesus with repentance and faith. So to any of you who've grown up in the church and became Christians and are worried you don't have a story, let me tell you, it is a miracle that you're saved. It is a miracle that the Holy Spirit gave you eyes to see both your sin as well as the fact your righteousness didn't measure up. More importantly right now, I think, for some of our teens who might be worried and wonder because they don't have this dramatic story, whether they're really Christians, I want to encourage you and potentially warn you. So look up here for just a minute. Sometimes conversion is dramatic and instant like Saul, but other times it's gradual and slow. And for many of you growing up here, you may not ever have a point you can point back to and say, this is when I prayed the prayer. This is when I became a Christian. But at some point you realize, I actually believe this stuff. I believe that Jesus died for me because I'm a sinner. And I believe that his blood is enough to cover my sin and give me grace. And as a result, you're now living in response to his work with repentance and faith. So if that's the case and your conversion is gradual and may even outwardly not look like you've changed all that much because you've been a relatively good kid, how do you know if you're a Christian? And this is the question I'd ask you. Are you living a life of repentance and faith? Right now, do you hate your sin? Right now, are you waging war against your sin? And when you do sin, are you looking to Christ's life, death, and resurrection as enough to cover you, to forgive you, and to empower you in that fight against sin? If you can't point to specific ways the Spirit is convicting you of sin and helping you to fight against sin and trust that Jesus is enough to cover you, then I do think you ought to talk to someone about whether or not you're really a Christian. But if you are living a life of repentance and faith, then that is the definition of what it means to be a Christian, regardless of how gradual your conversion is, regardless of how little outwardly you've changed. A life of repentance and faith, trust in Jesus, is what marks Christians. And if you are, the good news for you is that Jesus has, is, and always will identify with you as one of his people. And if you're a non-Christian hearing this story, then one thing I hope you realize hearing Saul's story is that Jesus can save the worst of sinners. Now, some people think that the least likely person to convert in Jesus is a terrorist. Yet this story disproves the theory. 
So imagine a leader of a terrorist group, ISIS, becoming a Christian and then going back to all his jihadist friends saying, you need to believe that Jesus is the Messiah too. Would that not be remarkable? This is what God did with Saul. He was persecuting the church, terribly enraged, taking his persecution even to foreign cities. And he suddenly begins to preach about Jesus as the only way. Listen, don't doubt God's power to save the worst of sinners. But more importantly, don't doubt God's power to save you. He has the power, the ability, and the desire to save you from your sin and bring you into union with his life, death, and resurrection. So how does Jesus build his church? First, by passionately identifying with his people so that we can be confident that no adversity, that no opposition will ever overcome us because even death itself could not overcome our Savior. Now look with me at verse 10 to see the second way he builds his church. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. He has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, and I, I love this. Lord, I have heard many things about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Here we see the second way Jesus builds his church is Jesus sovereignly planned how to expand his kingdom. Jesus sovereignly planned how to expand his kingdom. While Saul is waiting in the city, the Lord appears to a disciple of Jesus named Ananias and commands him to go to find Saul and lay hands on him so that he can regain his sight. But Ananias rationally objects, like any of us would. God, don't you know this person's here to kill me? And he killed a bunch of people back in Jerusalem? Naturally, Ananias is afraid to go and talk to this Saul who may end up arresting and killing him. But in response to Ananias' objection, the Lord graciously explains why he's still sending Ananias anyway. It's because God will use Saul to carry his name to the Gentiles, to the Israelites, to even kings. And more than that, Saul, who had persecuted others, would now suffer for the name of Jesus so that others might believe. So in the case of Saul... The comfort to Ananias is that the Lord Jesus had sovereignly chosen Saul and had a plan for his life to expand his kingdom. What is true for Saul specifically is true for all Christians generally. Ephesians tells us, 
that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world to the praise of his glorious grace. Or in 1 Peter, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world as the lamb without blemish or spot. And here we need to see in God's plan for Saul is the fact that God has a plan for everything going back before the foundation of the world. Since he created the world in Adam and Eve's sin, God has had a plan to redeem a people for himself. To expand his kingdom to the ends of the earth. God has had a plan that he's worked through Israel's sin and Israel's brokenness and through his people and specific people to bring about that plan through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And God is still continuing that plan even today. Using even opposition, using even adversity to actually accomplish his plan. As Joseph would describe God's plan when his brothers sold him into slavery. What you meant for evil, God used for good. That is what God has been doing and it's what the Lord Jesus is now telling Ananias he's doing for Saul. Listen, we don't have to worry or fear in the midst of opposition because Jesus has a plan. He's not surprised by what's going on. He's got a plan for how to actually use that adversity to accomplish his plan and it will succeed. He's not surprised, so we don't need to be anxious. When opposition comes, Jesus is powerful enough to know how he's going to respond and actually use that for our good and his glory. We need not fear. But instead, we can look to Jesus, trusting him and his sovereign plan to expand his kingdom. And when we do, we can have comfort, peace, and hope no matter our circumstances. Now, the reality is for this to comfort us, we have to believe at least one other thing. We have to believe that Jesus is good. It's one thing for Jesus to have a plan. It's one thing for Jesus to be powerful enough to accomplish that plan. But it matters very little in terms of our personal experience if we're not confident his plan is good. We're not confident that he is good. I suspect that if Ananias didn't believe that Jesus was good and his plan was good, despite hearing this plan for Saul, he might have still said, I'm not going there. And let's be honest with ourselves. From time to time, we struggle with the goodness of God. And personally, this is one area where I'm having to fight unbelief right now. This isn't because the scriptures aren't clear. They're very clear. It's not because I'm wondering intellectually whether Jesus is good. I, I know he's good but rather because emotionally and experientially, in my present circumstances, it is hard to see how he's good. Yet here is what I know to be true and what I hope will be an encouragement to those of you who are struggling with the same thing, who are struggling to trust his plan right now, who might be afraid of his plan, or who might think his plan might not be good. I know that on the cross, God did not spare his own son but graciously gave him up for us all. And so how will he not with him graciously give us all things? God's already given us his most precious gift. We can be confident that what he's doing is for our good. Further, I know when Jesus comes back and I see him face to face, and I can ask him every why question, why this, why that, I may not expect his answer, but I know when I walk away from that question, I will not be wanting answers anymore. 
I will know he's good. I will see how everything he's ever done has been for my good and for his glory. I'll see how he's taken every sad and every broken thing in this world and done a good thing with it. And not just that, but we know Jesus is in the midst of our pain with us. That's the point that we just covered. Jesus identifies with his people. He is the great high priest who's not far off, but knows how to sympathize with us because of what we've been going through. So in the midst of such a thing, I know these things to be true. I even believe these things to be true. And yet there are ways I need to fight to believe them even more because there's unbelief in my heart that affects the way I live. This is why a week or two ago when we were reading Mark 9, I so love the words of that father whose daughter is sick. I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. And what did Jesus do for that father? He healed the daughter. This is the thing Jesus delights to do in our weakness. When we doubt, he wants to help us believe. So dear brother, dear sister, when adversity comes, take comfort in the fact that Jesus has a plan. Find peace and security in the reality that Jesus has been working and will be working to bring fruition to every plan he has ever made and fight to believe even when it's hard that Jesus is good because he is. He was good enough to go to the cross for you. So Ananias, with reassurance from Jesus of his plan for Saul, goes to Saul and lays his hand on him and says, brother. Let's pause for a moment and consider the first word that Saul hears from a Christian. Pastor Tony Merida points this out. This means that the first word Saul hears from this man, this away, this man that Saul had come to Damascus to persecute, the very first word he hears is brother. What a comfort. Surely in that moment, Saul not only received his new identity as one who's in Christ, but recognized that in Christ, he had been given a new family. Becoming followers of Jesus involves coming to a family of brothers and sisters in Christ. We need this reminder that those who come to Jesus, no matter how much they were formerly our enemies, are now brothers and sisters in Jesus. The Jewish Christian can greet the former Nazi as brother. The Tutsu Christian can greet the Hutu Christian as sister, even after the Rwandan genocide. How can such former enemies treat one another as brothers or sisters? Such change is only possible through the power of our risen Savior. When we see how great a stench our sin is before God, and how loved and accepted and forgiven we are because Jesus died for us, then how can we greet such enemies as enemies? We realize that whatever they've done to us pales in comparison to all that we have done and continue to do against Jesus. So no matter how offensive they have been to us, if we have been forgiven in Christ, we realize they can be forgiven too. And so we can greet them, brother or sister. And so Ananias, having greeted this former enemy as his brother goes on to tell him 
that he was sent so that God might give Saul his sight back and fill him with his spirit. And this is exactly what happens. And after his encounter with the risen Christ, after his experience of the welcome of Christ through Ananias, and through his newfound sense of faith in and submission to Jesus as his Lord and Savior, Saul is baptized all as a part of God's sovereign plan to build his church. So how does Jesus build his church? First, he passionately identifies with his people. And second, he sovereignly planned how he was going to expand it from the very beginning. And since the very beginning, he has been working through the twists and turns of human brokenness and sin to bring about his plan, and that's what he's continuing to do right now. He will not fail. Look with me at verse 19 to see the final way Jesus builds his church. For some days he was with his disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. And they said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, He attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he, meaning Saul, went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. When the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, and sent him off to Tarsus. How does Jesus build his church? Jesus graciously turns enemies into evangelists. Jesus graciously turns enemies into evangelists. Verse 20 tells us that immediately after Saul's experience, he begins to proclaim Jesus was the Son of God. According to one New Testament scholar, the significance of Saul proclaiming Jesus was the Son of God is related to this title in the Old Testament. It was used to describe the people of God. It was used to describe the anointed king of Israel. And therefore, it was used to describe the ideal king of the future, the Messiah of David's line. So by proclaiming Jesus was the Son of God, what Saul is saying is Jesus was everything that Israel was not. Jesus is the king you've been waiting for. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises of the Messiah who would come to deliver his people. And as Saul proclaims, Jesus is the Son of God, they're amazed because they knew this is the guy who is persecuting people who said that. This is the guy who came here to arrest people saying that. But as time goes on, not only is Saul proclaiming Jesus was the Son of God, but the Spirit is actually strengthening him all the more so that he's actually proving from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ, confounding all the Jews. No one's able to say something otherwise. And as a result, the Jews plotted to kill him. And it's worth pointing out here that the Jews does not mean all Jews, because many Jews had come to believe in Jesus. Saul himself was a Jew. But we should note from this point forward, 
almost any time we read the term the Jews, Luke is now using that as a shorthand to describe the Jews who've rejected Jesus. And that's how he's using it here. So even as these Jews plot to kill him, their plot becomes known to Saul. He escapes through an opening in the wall and he heads immediately to Jerusalem. So at this point, Saul has been the foremost enemy of God's people. He left Jerusalem to persecute God's people. And now he's going back to Jerusalem as an evangelist fleeing persecution. The chief persecutor of the church is now the chief apologist. The persecutor has become the preacher. The adversary has become an apostle. He is no longer corrupt, but cleansed. No longer a church foe, but a part of the family. What a grace of God. And just as a quick note here, in Galatians 1, Paul also recounts his conversion and his journey to Jerusalem. And the details he provides are slightly different than the ones here. And there's ways in which those differences are not mutually exclusive, but actually fit together. So if you're curious about that, I can explain more after the service. But I do want to draw our attention to this fact. One of the, reason, one of the things differences draw our attention to is the fact that each author of the Bible actually has a specific purpose and why they're writing, which is why they include some details and not others. And so one of our responsibilities in reading Scripture is to understand what the, uh, what the author was writing for his original audience. And in discerning the original author's purpose and writing for his original audience, you know, we begin to be reminded that Scripture cannot mean what it never meant. This is a really helpful tool, especially in the Old Testament when we come to things like Joshua and all this description of the allotment of the land, is that may seem very foreign. It may seem very irrelevant. But it becomes helpful to us when we understand why would this author include this in this book for the original people. When we begin to discern that purpose, we can understand its relevance to us. That's your homework assignment. Uh, as you're reading the scripture, uh, continue to do so looking for what the purpose was for the original audience as we try to then apply it for us. But back to the story. Unsurprisingly, as Saul flees to Jerusalem, the disciples in Jerusalem want nothing to do with Saul. They're afraid of him. In fact, the text specifically tells us they did not believe he had become a disciple. They thought this was a trick in order to get in so that he could persecute them even more. But seeing this, Barnabas, the encourager, who we met earlier in the scriptures and we'll see again later in Acts, takes Saul to the apostle and explains three things to them. He explains how Saul had seen the risen Lord. He explains what he had heard from Jesus and from Ananias, who he had heard from. And the third thing, how Saul had been preaching boldly and was even persecuted for us. And it appears after the apostles heard this, they began to agree. Yep, Saul has really become a disciple. He's even being persecuted. They disseminate this information from the church, and the church begins to treat Saul differently. He goes in and out from among them, boldly preaching the gospel. And so while, again, this passage I don't think is specifically about church membership, it does illustrate for us one of the roles of church membership is to guard and protect the church and to teach us how to relate to particular people. So because of Saul's past, the church rightly fears Saul and wants to avoid him. But as the apostles 
uh, interrogate maybe, uh, but certainly question and hear his story and then say, yes, this man has become a disciple. The church changes the way they're relating to him. They now extend to him the right hand of fellowship. And the same is true for us today. Anytime a person walks into our church, there's one of three possibilities. That person may be a non-Christian that we need to evangelize. That person may be a wolf in sheep's clothing, actually bringing in false doctrine or seeking to use the church for personal gain or trying to draw genuine Christians away from Christ. And third, that person may be a genuine Christian who should be extended the right hand of fellowship. One thing I hope you'll notice is even if someone comes in here as a Christian, but they haven't committed themselves to be a member of the church, you have a different relationship with them than you do with the other members of this church. Members of this church have committed to walk together towards Jesus in a way that any other Christian you may not have committed to. They haven't said, I want you to speak into my life in this way. And the way, if you're a member, you have said, we want you to speak into our lives. We want you to help us follow Jesus. And so even if you are pursuing them as a brother, you would recognize them as a brother or sister, you need to recognize there's a difference in the kind of commitment you have to them. Now, I say this to caution us on the one hand. We don't want to be overly suspicious of people who come in here that we don't know. It is true that they might come in as wolves in sheep's clothing. I've seen that happen here. I've actually had to guard people from coming to this church who actually don't affirm the same doctrine we do and told them this is not going to be a place for you. We can't affirm you're a Christian if you deny the Trinity. That can happen and does happen, but we don't want to be overly suspicious of that. Yet because of that, we don't want to assume that just because someone has walked into the doors, they are a Christian. And this is what our membership process is all about. It's to help us clarify how we relate to different people we might interact with. When someone becomes a member here, they've explained the gospel to us, they've explained how they came to believe the gospel, and they've explained how the gospel is currently at work in their life. And when we receive them into membership, we are affirming, yes, we see that they're a Christian, and we commit together then to pursue Jesus. And while there are a variety of reasons why someone might profess Christ but not commit to a particular church or the church more broadly. They might not want to join the church as a member. There's many reasons. I'm not going to go into all of them now. Some might be good. One possible reason that is not good is that they think they're a Christian, but they're actually not. And the reason I say that is Christians commit themselves to fulfill the one another commands of Scripture. The only way you can fulfill the one another commands of Scripture is to actually do that with other believers. And so if someone would call themselves a Christian but isn't actually loving one another, confessing their sin to one another, showing hospitality to one another, we have every reason to say, pause, do you really understand the gospel? And so if someone is gathering with us and they've not yet joined the church, it may be one of your roles is simply to encourage them because they've never thought about joining the church. And so they simply need to be encouraged. Hey, maybe you should commit to this church or another church. But another possibility is you actually need to evangelize them. You actually need to explain the gospel to them. You actually need to help them understand how when we're united to Christ, we're not just united to him as individuals, but we're actually united to his people. And this is what membership does for us in part. And in the case of Saul, 
given his background, Barnabas introducing him to the apostles and the apostles saying, yes, he's a disciple, then allowed the church to welcome him in as a believer. And so as he goes in and out among them, preaching boldly, they go again wanting to kill him. They develop another plot to put this man to death. And so the believers get him to safety once again, sending him to his hometown Tarsus. What's so striking about Paul's experience in Damascus and his experience in Jerusalem is that Jesus has turned this former enemy of God into an evangelist, boldly proclaiming the gospel to any who would listen and even to those who wouldn't. This is also a part of how Jesus builds his church, taking those who are trying to destroy his church, taking those who hated God and his people, and turning them into people who not only are part of the church, but are actually inviting others to join the church through the gospel as well. And what's true of Saul is true of everyone who's come to Christ. Romans tells us that Jesus died for us while we were still enemies, who Saul was clearly invisible. We all are internally. And yet, even when we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. And when we trust Christ, 1 Peter tells us, now, one of the many reasons Jesus makes us members of the people of God is so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In Christ, we're all enemies turned evangelists. This isn't our only responsibility, but it is one of our responsibilities. Although we won't all be like Saul, with gifts able to prove Jesus was the Christ, we won't all have the same gifts for evangelism, Nevertheless, the case is all of us are called to evangelism. Now, every now and then, you'll hear someone say something like this. I'm not sure all Christians have the gift of evangelism. Or, I'm not sure I have the gift of evangelism. Which may be true. Not all Christians have the gift of evangelism. And I may not in particular have the gift of evangelism. I don't think I have it, just so everyone's clear. But the problem is, when people say that, what they often are implying, even if they would never outright say it, is because I don't have the gift, I don't have to do it. And I hope by what I've said so far, you can realize that is not true. We can not have the gift of evangelism, but we're still called to evangelize. In the same way, you and I might not have the gift of love we read about in 1 Corinthians 13, but you can be pretty sure all of us are commanded to love one another. Evangelism is something we've been commanded to do, every single one of us. But I can think of two reasons someone might say something like this, and there might be more, but one reason is they may simply have been poorly taught. There are some strains of teaching that will say, only exercise the spiritual gifts God has given you. So if you don't have the gift, you don't need to do it. You don't need to worry about it, and despite what the church may need, what people may need. If you don't have the gift, don't worry about just press in to the gifts God has given you. Let me just say it clearly, that's false. That's not good teaching. We have things God has commanded us to do, even if we don't have the gift. But in the case of that person, you simply need to come alongside them, help explain what the scriptures actually teach. But another reason is that people may have been blinded by their sin. We are commanded to evangelize, which means neglecting evangelism is sin. Let's just let that weigh in on us for a moment. Don't want to move too quickly. To neglect evangelism is sin in the eyes of a holy God. 
And one of the things a Christian can do with their sin is either plead the blood of Jesus, trust that Jesus forgives us of all our sin, including neglecting evangelism, and then trust the Holy Spirit to empower us to evangelize. Or the other response is to become blinded to our sin, to begin to minimize, oh, I'm not evangelizing for this reason or that reason, and to get to a point of self-justification. I don't evangelize because I don't have the gift of evangelism. And so our neglect of evangelism, our sin, blinds us to the realities. But listen, that is not the appropriate place of a Christian. That's not the appropriate response. Our role should not be to say, in our sin, let me comfort myself. I don't really have to do it for whatever reason. The role is to say, I'm a sinner in desperate need of grace. And because Jesus is so good, I can confess anything. And he is faithful and just to forgive us. And once we have brought that sin, including neglecting evangelism, to the throne of grace, we can trust his blood is enough to cover us. And not just that Jesus died to send his spirit to empower us, to change us, so that we might actually be more faithful evangelists. Now, for those of you who have more sensitive consciences, let me just be clear. Every single one of us is in a different level of spiritual maturity, and that differs from person to person. Some may really struggle with anger, but be great evangelists, while someone might not be angry ever, but be a terrible evangelist. This is not saying if you're weak in that area, you need to constantly beat yourself up. But it is to say, recognize where you are. And I think all of us, even if we're really weak in that, one of the ways we can grow is to at least pray, as we talked about last week. Holy Spirit, help me. Give me a burden for the lost. Give me opportunities. Help me to explain the gospel boldly to people who need to hear it. And this is one way we can grow. This is one way we can depend on the Spirit for our sanctification. And if you're doing that, you're pleading the blood of Jesus. You're growing in him. You don't need to add the weight of unconfessed, unrepentant sin and beat yourself up. But where I'd be really concerned for you is this. If you've gotten to the point of thinking, I don't need to evangelize, that's not my thing. So you've actually stopped praying. You've stopped asking the Lord to give you a burden for the loss. You've stopped asking for the Lord to give you opportunities to tell people about Jesus. You've stopped asking people to help you be bold in your faith. Then you ought to be concerned. You ought to be concerned that maybe sin has blinded you and beg that the Spirit would give you eyes to see and beg that the Spirit would empower you once again. This is, in fact, one of the ways Jesus builds his church. He graciously turns former enemies of God into evangelism. Yes, this is, or into evangelists. Yes, this is a responsibility, but it's also an incredible privilege that God has said, I'm not just going to go do my thing apart from my people, but I'm actually going to bring my people into the work to redeem a people for myself and expand my kingdom to the ends of the earth. In fact, the church and its bold proclamation of the gospel is God's plan A for the world. And there is no plan B. That is how the gospel will go to the nations through the church. So dear brother, dear sister, yes, it is your responsibility 
to tell others about Jesus. But it's also your privilege to declare what the king has done for you through his life, death, and resurrection. So don't squander the gift. And even if it frightens you, or you've been sinfully neglecting this command, simply plead the blood of Jesus. He is gracious to forgive you. He's ready to move towards you. And his spirit is eager to empower you, to use you, to call others to call upon his name. So Jesus builds his church by passionately identifying with his people, by sovereignly planning to expand his, people, his kingdom, and by graciously turning enemies into evangelists so that former enemies are actually a part of building his church. And so what's the result of Jesus doing all this for us? Now look with me at verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The result of Jesus building his church is that the church has peace and has built up. The church has peace and has built up. Luke recounts very simply how as a result of everything Jesus did in Saul's life, there's peace in the church throughout this entire region. And they are being built up in Christ. Despite the adversity, despite the opposition, despite the hatred of God's people we began with in verse 1 and 2, despite the legitimate fear of Ananias and the disciples we found throughout the middle, here at the end, we see the church is walking in the fear of the Lord, not the fear of man, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. In the midst of such opposition, the church does not shrink, but multiplies. This is what happens when God's people trust Jesus to build his church. They experience peace and he builds it up such that it multiplies as enemies of God are turned by the gospel. And this is what Jesus still intends to do today in and through his church. This is why our vision as a church is to see Jesus treasured above all else and made much of, not just through individual Christians, but through local churches. Jesus doesn't just want a bunch of individual Christians running around doing their own thing. He wants to build his church, a new community of Christ, together. And this is what he's doing. And so we want the ministry that we give ourselves to build up, not just individuals who hear the gospel, but local churches in our area and in every corner of the world. This is part of what I'm so excited to go to Romania for. It's not just to encourage the Coxes, but actually to be exposed to their church. That's doing the same work we're doing here in Romania. And to figure out how we can join together and partner more effectively with them as we seek the gospel to go uh, not just here, but to the ends of the earth. And so Northwood, I hope you've seen that because Jesus will build his church, we can have peace no matter what the world throws at us. No matter what sin might tempt us to. No matter what the evil one might be trying to do. We can have peace because the God of the universe, the Savior who hung on the cross, has promised that he will build his church. And so as we conclude our time together, I want to invite you to reflect on what God has been saying to you through his word. And in particular, I'm going to plead with you, please don't let this be the last time you think about it. Think of a way to talk with another member or your family, about what the Lord was saying to you, perhaps over lunch or dinner or some other time throughout the week. And you might even consider using these questions to help facilitate that.
Are you presently turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus? How are you comforted knowing that if you are in Christ, Jesus counts anything done to you as something done to him? When you may fear God's plan or object to God's plan, how does knowing his plan is for your good and his glory bring you comfort or hope? And how does knowing one reason that Jesus has called you to himself is so that you can proclaim his excellencies, shape your attitude towards evangelism? Let's take a moment to consider what God has been saying to us. Holy Father, we believe you're good. And I'm fighting to believe you're good. So we ask that you would help us to trust you. Help us to trust your promise to build your church. And as we consider the various ways you've done that in Saul's life, you've identified with us and planned before the foundation of the world, how he'll build your church through evil and opposition and even using us, that you would encourage our hearts to hope in you, to trust in you. When it feels like we have every reason to doubt and fear, please remind us of what you've done on the cross. Please remind us of your promises so that we would trust you, so that we would not have anxiety but peace so that we would not have fear but comfort. Lord, we thank you that even where we have neglected our responsibility to be a part of building the church, that your blood is enough, that it covers us, and that your promise does not hinge on our faithfulness but yours. Thank you. And so because of your love and grace, we ask that you would help us in response to your word, worship you with joy, with love, and with thankfulness for all that you've done for us in Jesus. In his precious name we pray, amen.